Hey, this is Saturday Sports on TSN 690. I'm Joey Alfieri with you till noon. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So much going on in the world of sports, even though the NHL offseason is eh, pretty much in full effect. We'll break down the uh, Aaron Rodgers-Tom Brady matchup. Bucks and Packers tomorrow. We'll talk to Rodgers' former teammate Josh Burke. That goes just after 11.35. He's an Owls legend too, so we'll get him to share some great stories. Montreal Impact back in action on TSN 690 tonight against Inter-Miami. Our coverage begins at 6, but but Impact Assistant Sporting Director Vasily Kremenzidis will join us at 11.05. He'll talk to us about the team's decision to move on from Safir Tider. He's off to the Saudi League and also caught some baseball last night. Rays and Braves not able to finish off their opponents. Some wild stuff going on last night. Gotta love October baseball. We'll talk about that in a few minutes as well. And we'll discuss the Canadians offseason with chartinghockey.ca Sean Tierney. He's also Director of Analytics for the Hamilton Bulldogs of the OHL. You can get in touch with the program a couple different ways. You can text us at 11690 or you can tweet me at Joey Alfieri and at TSN 690. Uh, we'll get to our poll question, which uh, goes hand in hand with where I want to start. And uh, looking at the work that Mark Bergevin has done, look, everybody in the city, I think if you're a Canadians fan, most people have been critical at some point of the work that Mark Bergevin has done with the Montreal Canadiens. And look, when you've been the general manager of a team for eight years, you're going to hit some home runs, uh, you're going to hit some singles, you'll hit some doubles, and then on occasion, you're going to strike out. Uh, it's only normal. Uh, I think that if you're looking at this offseason and you're not thrilled with the way it's gone, and I, I really don't know many Canadians fans that aren't thrilled with the way it's gone, I think you're being overly negative. And the cherry on the Sunday is getting Brendan Gallagher, who's the engine, the heart and soul of the Canadians, you know, getting him locked up long-term. And yes, I do think uh, contract's a little long, a little bit longer than I would have thought. But still, uh, you know, it's a seven-year, basically he's a seven-year agreement here between the Canadians and Gallagher. He's got one year left on his deal this year at uh, very reasonable. He comes in at under $4 million, just like he has been over the last few years. And then he's going to get the bump in pay uh, up to $6.5 million, uh, the following six years. Look, with a lot of these deals, I realized that, you know, the Josh Anderson one, people were shocked that it was seven years and it was too long. And I know there's some people who think that Brendan Gallagher is going to break down. Canadians are in it to win it right now. And I don't know if they're Stanley Cup contenders at this point, but I think they're definitely a team that's in the playoff mix. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if to see them finish in the top three in the division, assuming that the Atlantic division stays the same. Or, I don't know, we might be going off to this, you know, all-Canadian division. That's possible as well. But listen, I think no matter what, I think the Canadians are in the conversation with the Leafs, Vancouver. Maybe they're not at the same level as you know a team like Vancouver, who you know just went on a nice little playoff run here, one that went longer than the Canadians did. Um, but you know, I think they've got to be in the conversation for one of the better Canadian teams heading into this 2020-2021 season. I think there's no doubt about that. Uh, look, I, I think at right wing. They definitely had some holes, and they've basically revamped the right side. Gallagher's back long-term. He'll be your uh, your first right winger. And then you've got Josh Anderson, Tyler Toffoli, who says that he's open to playing left wing, but he hasn't really played there much during his professional career. I don't think there's anything wrong with going 1-2-3, Gallagher, Anderson, Toffoli. And the work that the Canadians have done this offseason – has been remarkable. And it goes back to this. And look, 
times we're all wrong, and I've I've taken enough calls on the station to, um, you know, to 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 interact with you guys, and you know, I I do think that the Canadians fan listing has a lot to be critical over the last few years. Don't get me wrong, the Canadians haven't had nearly enough success on the ice. But this whole thing, this notion, I always thought it was overblown and I thought it was ridiculous and I'm just glad that we can put it to bed is that Jeff Molson wasn't willing to spend money, the Canadians weren't a cap team, yada, yada, all this stuff, all this stuff that's been talked about over the last couple of years. You know, they have a, they have a budget and they're, they're a budget team and I never bought that for a second. And I think what we've seen play out over the last couple of weeks is that the Canadians were never a budget team. If they're willing to spend to the cap, and I think they're technically over the cap right now, but there's easy solutions to that. But I think that you're quickly realizing that if Jeff Molson was willing to spend the money in a pandemic, he's probably willing to spend it the last couple of years. And it's a good thing. You know what? I'm glad that they didn't blow money just for the sake of blowing money because people were clamoring for them to spend. And I'm glad they didn't give in to, to the pressure of the market, you know, the people dictating, you know, coming... I Listen, there's people in the media that felt the same way, that, yeah, Canadians aren't spending, there's $8 million under the cap, it's unacceptable. I never saw it as a big issue in the sense that, yes, you would love for them to get better, you'd love for them to ice a better, more competitive team, and spending to the cap would do that. But spending for the, sp- for the sake of spending and having the Canadians tie up money... You know, even if it wasn't long term and just like, you know, short to middle term, you know, I don't think that benefits anybody. And you saw because they had the money available to them, because they didn't spend last offseason and the offseason before to the cap, they were able to lock guys in at, for the most part, reasonable contracts. They were able to make uh, the necessary additions that they need, they felt they needed to make to improve this club. And that kind of leads right into my uh, poll question of the day which you can find at Joey Alfier and at TSN690 on Twitter. What's your favorite off-season move? It doesn't necessarily mean the best, but just your favorite off-season move that the Canadians have made. And uh, so we've got giving Gallagher 6 by 6.5, getting Josh Anderson and signing Josh Anderson, giving Tyler Toffoli four years and $4.25 million per year. And I lumped in the uh, Jake Allen, Joel Edmondson acquisitions together. And... Uh, yeah, I, I certainly have my take, and uh, very curious to see how this poll shakes out. Uh, we're already uh, well over 500 votes, and there is one of these answers that has over 50% of the vote. Saturday Sports on TSN 690 with Joey Alfieri. Very happy to have my good buddy John still in. John, who filled in for me on Melnick in the afternoon this week. What's up, John? Giuseppe, come What's on, going on? I'm good. I'm good. That was a little French and Italian mixed in there. That sounds like a lot of my siblings, uh, when they try to speak Italian to my grandparents, they mix in a little English, oh, come French, on, and vai. Italian. Yeah, that's not right. That's right. Not right. That's not. Oh, well, I went with. But the you're como. close. Como's right. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. You want to? You want to? You want to? You want to tackle this question? This poll question of the day? Uh sure. Why not? Um. Man. Okay, what do you before you answer? Yeah. So I said uh the four options are giving Gallagher a six year extension at six and a half million per year, getting and signing Josh Anderson, giving to Foley four years four point two five million, or the Allen Edmondson acquisition. I put that in as one. One of these four options has fifty one percent of the votes. 
I'm Which option do you think that is? that it has to do with number 11. That would be incorrect. Incorrect. Okay, incorrect. Then, okay, then my personal take as yes. to what I think is the best one is getting Josh Anderson. Okay, that is also incorrect. Josh Anderson, uh, that one's in second at 21.6%. Gallagher's at 20.9%. As you would imagine, the Allen Edmondson duo comes in last at 6.5%. I get it, depth pieces. And a backup goalie. And the one that this would have been mine, and I'm surprised that the audience went this way because I thought that they would have go they would have gone with Gallagher. Uh, but giving to Foley four years, four point two five wow. million is an in at fifty one point one percent. Wow. I like that one. I'm I, surprised. Really? I'm pretty shocked. I thought the Gallagher one would be first. I thought Toffoli would be second. I know I'm higher on Josh Anderson than most, so I can understand why. And everyone with the one goal last year, they're all pretty reticent as to the uh, long-term extension on a guy coming off a major injury. But I am surprised that Toffoli comes ahead of Brendan Gallagher and Jake Allen just because of the amount of talk the last couple of seasons. Never mind the goal scoring, which we know has been a big problem. But the fact that any goaltender that has been chosen to back up Carey Price has received the vitriol of this fan base time and time and time again. Mike Condon, Dustin Tokarski, Peter Budai at the end. I mean, we can go on and on. Uh, Antti Niemi, we're finally done with Keith Kincaid. I would have thought it would have gone Gallagher, then Jake Allen and Edmondson, then Toffoli, then Anderson. So I am surprised that Tyler Toffoli is leading the line here for the Montreal Canadiens. Well, a couple things. This is this was my whole this was my whole argument, right? And this is what I was. Uh, this would have been, you know, this is what I would have said, and this is the reason why this is the favorite move for me. It's because of the term. It's only four years. He's twenty eight, so that takes him to thirty two, uh, and it's because you didn't have to give anything to get him. You didn't have to trade any assets, and I think the four point two five is pretty reasonable for a guy who, you know, once upon a time scored 31, and he's kind of been in that 24 range uh, over the last few years. Not huge, but six feet, almost 200 pounds. It's a, you know, it's solid uh, for an NHL winger. And again, I think the salary and term is why that's the favorite move because locking him in for four years. And the Anderson one, I knew it wouldn't win because of the seven years. Right. But I like Josh Anderson just me. I like him just as much as you do. I, I like the fit in Montreal. I, like I love what Josh done. Anderson. I love Josh Anderson too. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Uh, and the Gallagher extension, again, I like it, but I think when a lot of people look at it, they say, ooh, Brendan Gallagher, Brendan Gallagher till he's 35. I'm not quite worried about that yet. I realize that this contract eventually is not going to age well, but I think a lot of these contracts, uh, these long-term extensions age that way. For me, the Gallagher one is just a question of how many years is going to be too many when it's all said and done. Like, are the back is is the last year going to be? Ooh, Brendan Gallagher six and a half million for this type of production. Uh, that's a tough one to swallow. Is it going to mm-hmm. be just the one year? Is it going to be two years? Is it going to be three years? I don't know. People seem to think that because of the way he plays and his size, that he's going to break down. I kind of feel that way too, but I don't know for sure. But the thing is, you know, looking at each one of these deals, the, the the Anderson one is long, the Gallagher one is long. Those are pretty much seven-year commitments. The Toffoli one, he's a top six winger, and you got him for four years at a reasonable salary because of the pandemic. I think it's easy to see why that one's the favorite. I can understand that, but I think people need to realize that the reason why 
Mark Bergevin was able to give out so much term is because term is so attractive right now in the world yeah. that we're at. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, being able to fit so many guys under the ceiling is because he was able to offer that term. I mean, if Josh Anderson is signing for, what, four years here, I'm assuming that his salary is climbing to just under $7 million, yeah. probably add a million more right. per season to be getting the same amount of dollar figures. Because you're so, buying free agent years. You yeah, that's exactly right. That. That's it. So now the, the most interesting thing for me, everyone's going to, to Philip Deneau. And yes, Philip Deneau is going to be a very interesting negotiation for Mark Bergevin. And I think in the end it will get done. But Yasperi Kakanyemi, I mean... It's all going to come down to this season for him. I don't know what your expectations are of Kakanyemi because he's an RFA at the end of this year. Yeah. If he gets 50 points, let's mm-hmm. just say, yeah. or let's say he gets 40 points, I wonder if Mark Bergevin is committed to not doing a bridge deal a la Patrick Line where it's two years, or he decides to lock him in for four years at four million or four and a half million. I think that's going to be super interesting going into the season as to yeah. what Yasperi Kakanyemi can get for himself, both in terms of uh, in terms of term and dollars. Because I think everyone's just skipping over that for the Philip Deneau kind of argument. Right. Instead of seeing if Yasperi Kakanyemi and his camp want the money that walks him right up to Unrestricted free agency, or whether it's a two-year bridge deal, prove yourself, and then we're re- we're right back where they are two years from now. Mark Bergevin going to be very very busy. I hope he enjoys his little vacation that he's got going on here for the next couple of weeks because uh, things are about to hit the fan. Well, that's the thing. Well, you touched on a couple interesting things I wanted to get to. Uh, first of all, I think Phil Deneau is way more important to this team than a lot of people realize, and I think that's a contract they've got to find a way. They've got to hammer it out. It's got to be done. And I know Mark Bergevin knows Phil Deneau uh, from his days in the Chicago Blackhawks front office. He pushed for him to be drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks late in the first round, the year that they took Phil Deneau. They've got to find a way to get that done. I think Phil Deneau is more valuable and more important than a lot of people realize. And I think, you know, it's easy to forget when you watch the way the the playoffs went and the way the, the playing round went, you know, to say, oh, you know, it's really exciting to see Nick Suzuki and Jesperi Kotkaniemi play at the level that they did. But you still need Phil Deneau, who, by the way, is only 27 years old, turned 27 this year. Uh, I think that you've got to find a way to get that done. Because over a full season, it's going to be tough to ask Nick Suzuki and Jesperi Kotkaniemi to play the way they did in the playoffs. You're talking about guys who got five months off, who got to come back fresh. They got to basically have another offseason season. And it was kind of a sprint because they got to play like three weeks or whatever it was. Now you're going to have to pace yourself and you're going to have to find a way to gut through a condensed schedule. So in my mind, I think even long-term beyond this year, I think Phil Deneau is a very, very valuable part of this team. And if training camp started tomorrow and I was the head coach, my I, I would be putting Dano Gallagher to Tar back together. Like that that's my I really, really like that line. Oh, I agree. I think as a trio, um, in terms of chemistry, that is one of the best lines in hockey. And yes, I know there's more talented players who play on lines together, but I just think the way that the three feed off each other, I think that's one of the lines that has the greatest chemistry in the league. Mm-hmm. I'd put them back together. Yeah. Same. So that's that that means significant minutes for Phil Dano. And I gotta try to convince him 
that we're going to find ways to get you time here, even though you know we really like Esperi Kotkaniemi, even though we really like Nick Suzuki, and we think both of those guys can be number one centers in the NHL, there's always going to be a place for Phil Deneau. It's not because he's French. It's not because Mark Bergevin knew him in Chicago. It's because he's a really, really good player. Well, he had 50 points this year, and he takes all the key faceoffs, John. He does all he does all the heavy lifting defensively, kills penalties, and I don't even mind them on a second power play unit. Well, Got to find a way to get it done. Well, that's my point is that when Philip Deneau was saying the things that he said just starting the offseason, I was just perplexed as to what he was saying because I look at him in the same way that I looked at Thomas Placanitz when he was playing for Michel Terrier and Claude Julien. Claude Julien loves Philip Deneau. He loves him more than Jesperi Kakanyemi. There are going to be times this upcoming season where people are going to be frustrated by the fact that, let's say, Jesperi Kakanyemi is having a good game, and Philip Deneau is going to get more ice time yeah. solely for the fact that Claude Julien, number one, trusts him more than Jesperi Kakanyemi. To your point, the face-offs, and he's playing with arguably two of the Canadians' best wingers over the past five years. I understand Josh Anderson and Tyler Toffoli, but... Anderson is going to be playing with a guy who we don't know who he is night in and night out in Jonathan Drouet. And Toffoli is going to be playing with a guy who, so far in his career with Claude Julien, has had 15 games where Claude Julien has really trusted him. And other than that, he's gone to other options. So I, I don't worry whatsoever about ice time, about usage for Philip Deneau. He plays with Brendan Gallagher, another player that Claude Julien loves. I don't worry about it whatsoever. I'm worried more so that the fact that he's going to be used so much, Phil Deneau and his agent are going to say, uh, you're expecting That's, to sign me for $4.5 million? Yeah. Add a million or a million and a half to that, pal, because I know how important I am, not only to this team, but to this coaching staff, because Nick Suzuki looked good at times in the face-off dot, but are you really going to, go, yet. Are you going to turn over some defensive zone draws to, to Jake Evans? No, I no mean, it takes time. No matter how much you like Yoel Armia and whoever else is going to be playing on the fourth line between Arturi Lekkanen and Paul Byron, yeah. you trust Philip Deneau, Brendan Gallagher, and Thomas Tatar tenfold over those guys. Yeah, and the thing, the other thing is, that's, that's why Phil Deneau comes out and says what he says. Sure, it's a role thing, but I also think that it's money, and and John, you mentioned Thomas Placanitz, and I absolutely see him in that similar kind of role. I don't know if he'll ever be as productive uh, as Peak Placanitz was. I, I just I don't think offense comes as easily to fill the noise as it did to Thomas Placanitz at his at his peak. But the key is, Thomas Placanitz was making six million dollars a year, mm-hmm. and I realize we're in a COVID world now, and th- things are different. But Phil Deneau is going to want that long term security, and he's going to want to be paid like an important center. Just like you look back at the Pittsburgh Penguins, and yes, they had Sidney uh, Crosby and Evgeny Malkin early on, but they also had Jordan Stahl, who was very well paid, a guy that they invested a high draft pick in, mm-hmm. and a guy that they developed, um, you know, a guy who came into the NHL at 18, so not exactly the same circumstance as Phil Deneau, but still a guy who played important minutes, uh, and he did a lot of the dirty work. Uh, down the middle for the Penguins. And I think Phil Deneau is looking at a similar type of role eventually. Is that the role he plays this coming season? No, I think there's a couple more seasons of Phil Deneau getting significant offensive opportunities at 5-on-5 anyway. But it's going to be a question of finding the dollar amount that makes sense to him and finding the dollar amount that makes sense to you. And again, it might come down to one of those things where you have to give Phil Deneau more term to buy down the cap hit. And so this contract might come out if it gets done, and you might look around and say, 
oh man, that's a long commitment to Phil Deneau. Like the Canadians are locking up Phil Deneau till he's 34 because mm-hmm. he's 27 right now. And it might be another seven or eight year deal. But in order to get a reasonable cap hit now, you might have to give an extra year, two or three that you weren't necessarily planning on giving. And I think that's that's why this is such a tricky, fascinating negotiation. Because right now, I think he's one of your top two centers. It's him and Nick Suzuki. Eventually, a year, two, or three years down the line, there's a very real chance that he's your clear-cut third-line guy. Mm-hmm. And what you pay him now, he might not be worth that two, three years down the line, but you're going to have to get him done now just because he is so important to your team. Well, and that that's why it's it's a fa- this is a fascinating negotiation. And not only that, based on the way that Mark Bergevin used the negotiating power this offseason, you expect that if Philip Deneau is going to be re-signed by the Canadians, it's going to be a very long-term contract. Yes. Because I of the fact so. that it brings the dollars down. The only way I see Philip Deneau not being back with the Canadians in 2021-2022 is it's all money. If he well, wants, if he wants six, well, I don't know that they can never, make that. Never work. mind the money, because I think he is going to ask for upwards of five million dollars. I do believe he'll ask for that. Now I don't know how Mark Bergevin hammers that out, but but five, I think f- you're okay. I think if it gets into I mean, the over high, five. Say, yeah, I mean, if over it gets five. into your sixes, I think that's. But I think if you see, if you have number one great years from both Nick Suzuki and Yasperi Kakanyemi combined with an unreal AHL season from Ryan Paling. Those are the only things that I could possibly see happening where Mark Bergevin looks and says, okay, it's possible that we mm. could lose Philip Deneau and not get killed. Oh, boy. That's the only way. that like, and, and I don't think all three of those things can happen this year. It's going to be three. It's going to come down to three things that I don't believe are possible to actually happen. Right. Yeah, I, just, I have a hard time seeing Phil Deneau walk somewhere else because I expect the Canadians to be in the playoff mix which means that they wouldn't trade him at the deadline and get something for him and then to, to just have the guy walk at 28 years old the guy who's pretty much been your number one center the last couple of years uh, man that's tough alright uh, we've got more hockey talk coming up according to the data the Canadian the data I love the data the Canadians had terrible shooting luck last season if their shooting percentage goes back to being just average how good can they be Charting Hockey's Sean Tierney has the answer, and it may shock you. I'm Joey Alfieri. This is Saturday Sports on TSN 690. By getting the, the no move and the no trade, it's just in for a, for a player in my position, it's really the only control you have over the situation. You know, you want to sign this contract to play for Montreal, and uh, it's really the only way that you have a little bit of control to making sure that happens. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it so many times in this business that, that things just happen, uh, you know, and, and change comes, and it's, it was really the only way to put a little bit of control in your favor. So that was something that was pretty important to me, and uh, I was happy to be able to secure with that contract. That's the voice of Brendan Gallagher, who was on Off the Cuff with uh, Chris and Sean yesterday on TSN 690. This is Saturday Sports. On that very same radio station, TSN 690, uh, we're talking Habs. So we've got our Saturday Sports poll question of the day. What is your favorite move of the offseason uh, for Mark Bergevin and uh, leading the way. Tyler Toffoli signing a four-year deal at $4.25 million per season. Uh, it's at 50.1%. Uh, giving Gallagher six years and $6.5 million per year is at 21.8%. 
getting and signing Josh Anderson, 21.3%. So how about that? Neck and neck, Gallagher and Anderson. Uh, those uh, those two moves are neck and neck for second place, but Tyler Toffoli uh, running away with it. Joining us now to talk about that and uh, so much more on the Montreal Canadiens and the NHL scene in general. He's from chartinghockey.ca, also the director of analytics for the Hamilton Bulldogs of the OHL. He's Sean Tierney joining us on Saturday Sports with Joey Alfieri. Sean, what's going on, man? Yeah, not too much. How you doing, Joy? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, why don't we start with that uh, with our poll question? Your favorite move of the offseason for Mark Bergman? You've got the Gallagher extension, getting Josh Anderson, signing Tyler Toffoli, or we also threw in we put them as a tandem little package deal. The uh, Jake Allen and Joel Edmondson moves. Yeah, I noticed your poll this morning, and I think um, you know largely agree. But for me, the the big move for Bergevin was bringing in Toffoli at a, a reasonable contract. Mm-hmm. I think if we're looking at any other offseason, something that isn't you know affected by COVID and the uncertainty with the cap, uh, he goes for way more than 4.25. The term doesn't kill you either. He's a 20-year-old forward coming in at that price tag for four years. So uh, I think Bergevin did well to get sort of a bargain. And Toffoli's really going to fit in with the Canadians who tend to be one of those sort of fast-moving, they create a lot of shot quality, they're a dominant uh, five-on-five team. And Toffoli's been that kind of player over the past few seasons himself. So he's almost like uh, almost a, a version of Gallagher in a way, and I think he'll fit right in in that sort of top six. And it winds up being a pretty sneaky ad, probably below market value for the player. Right. So I, I mentioned uh, when teasing you here in the last segment, I mentioned that you know the Canadians' shooting luck last year was terrible, and you know we know where they finished. They were 12th place in the East, but they end up getting into the playoffs through the play-in thanks to COVID and all that stuff. But if this team just shoots average. With you know Anderson coming in, with Toffoli coming in, like how good can this team be if just the shooting percentage just goes to normal? Right, it, they're an interesting team because they create a lot of expected goals, which is just you take shots and you give them a value based on how likely they were to be a goal, just sort of you know how far out was the shot, was it a rebound, all that sort of thing. And Montreal is one of the best teams in the league at creating expected goals, at creating tons and tons of opportunities for themselves. Uh, and they really underscored it last year. They had, you know, one of the worst shooting percentages in the NHL. And so because of that, you know, as you mentioned, they're on the cusp and they only got into the playoffs because of the sort of expanded format. But if you just give this team, uh, if you play them forward to next season and say they're going to be something sort of similar, which I think is fairly reasonable based on the moves they've made, they've added a little bit. Um, if this team shoots just sort of league average, they become a sort of mid-90s point team, 95, 96 points. And then you're looking at, you know, earning a playoff spot the sort of standard, typical way. And I think going into next season, whenever that may start, and, you know, we're kind of a, a ways away from it at this point, I think it's pretty realistic to say this is a team that's going to be right in the middle of the pack in the East, probably six, maybe five, maybe four, uh, depending on how everything shakes out, if they just sort of play the way they've played the past couple of seasons. But don't suffer that truly horrible shooting luck that right. seems to have been plaguing them. So, you know, we'll, we'll see if they bounce back. You, you never know for sure, but I would bet on it with all the quality they create. He's Sean Turney from the Hamilton Bulldogs and ChartingHockey.ca joining us on Saturday Sports on TSN 690 with Joey Alfieri. Uh, so, Sean, if, if we look at, uh, listen, we and we don't know what, you know, is it an all-Canadian division? Are they coming back to the regular, you know, Atlantic and Metropolitan? Like, we don't know that yet. I'm assuming that they're going to go with the the Canadian division route. If you're ranking 
the Canadian teams, where do you think the Canadians fall, in your opinion, given the moves that they've made? Well, so I like, I mean, I think just sort of as a, a bystander to the whole situation, I like the Montreal Canadiens because they can roll right now probably three lines that could all be something like a second or a first line. Mm-hmm. That Gallagher line, if they keep that group together with yeah. Tatar and Deneau, and, and you know, we don't know for sure how that's going to look either, but that's been shy of Mark Stone and the Max Pacioretty line in Vegas. That's mm-hmm. been the best line in hockey over the past couple of seasons. So um, I, I don't think it's crazy to say that Montreal can be maybe second, third best among the Canadian teams. Um, you know, the Leafs have made good moves and not very popular to show up at a Montreal radio station and compliment <laughs> the Leafs. But, uh, you know, the Leafs have a lot of firepower and are really trying to address uh, sort of the, the depth lines, which have been an issue for them. So I think they'll be in the mix, too. Um, Vink, kind of a team that became buzzy, especially with their playoff performance, but they really overperformed um, expectation last year. They were pretty poor defensively and uh, I don't know what it's going to look like between a young goalie and adding Holtby, who wasn't great last year. Right. I see them more as a middle of the pack. So, you know, I, I think once we get down that deep and it starts to be messy, the Flames will be in the picture. The Oilers maybe middle of the pack. Senators still have a long road back on their rebuild, although they're making some decent moves with, you know, the likes of Dadenoff coming in there. I think, you know, if it's a Canadian division, Toronto probably near the top, and I think Montreal's going to be right there with them, maybe the Canucks. So, that Canadian division ultimately isn't bad news for Toronto or Montreal. You get Boston and uh, Tampa Bay out of the way, and right. you know the sky's kind of the limit. So if and then if they stick, let's say with the Atlantic, just the regular format that we've been used to here, would you be comfortable saying that the Canadians had an opportunity to finish in the top three, like with Tampa, Boston, and Toronto still in the mix there? Yeah, I think that's exactly the way I would break it down. There's no reason to suspect Tampa's going to be anything less than excellent. They're going to roll back a fairly similar, with the top players all in place. They're really dominant. Uh, Boston's going to be the same thing, especially, uh, you know, if they bring back the roster pieces they have, although Rask is a bit of an uncertainty. Those are definitely the top two. Um, You know, Toronto's completely capable of a face plant. Anderson super uh, underperformed expectation last year. If that continues... Toronto's going to be right back in that same spot, just trying to etch out a playoff spot for themselves again. And in that situation, I think Montreal, especially, you know, if Price looks anything like playoff Price, which was, you know, first time he's looked that great probably in four years. And I think Allen can handle a sort of 40% backup load. He was, you know, better than Bennington for St. Louis last year, was above expectation. If you start to add those pieces together, a team that creates lots of offense, maybe is, you know, really solid in net. Um, yeah, they can be in the mix as maybe the third best team in the Atlantic if we do stick with that division format mm-hmm. next year. He's the director of analytics for the Hamilton Bulldogs in the OHL, and he's also from chartinghockey.ca. Sean Tierney joining us on Saturday Sports on TSN 690 with Joey Alfieri and John Still. John? Sean, uh, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but uh, the, everyone in this market uh, cannot enjoy things for more than 24 hours as, as soon as Brendan Gallagher was signed. The thoughts move to Philip Deneau, who will be a UFA, and you spoke about how good that line has been with uh, he, Gallagher, and Tatar. Uh, in terms of contract comparables, or in terms of if you were the GM of the Canadians, what are you thinking about in terms of both term and in terms of dollars for Philip Deneau on his next deal? I think it's become kind of interesting. I know we've been sort of analyzing the... Uh, the tone in Bergevin's voice as he's been referring to a Gallagher versus a Deneau and what does that mean for, you know, his future with the team. 
Um, Deneau has been an underpaid player at, at $3 million, right at the point of his prime at 27 years old. And then again, as you mentioned, playing on you know maybe hockey's best line or one of the top couple of lines in hockey. So we're talking about a player who maybe doesn't have that name cachet that others do, but really does drive possession in a way that leads to good results. So, you know, when we break him down, his time on ice at five on five compared to other top forwards is right among the top, uh, always on the right side of the shot quality battle, which is really great. He's created wealth for his teammates. He creates his own shot. Um, and then he plays special teams too. So um, I really do think that he's the kind of player that you miss badly once you uh, take him out of the roster. The money part is going to be tricky, though. I think, um, you know, if we're just sort of comparing him league-wide, he isn't worth less than what Gallagher signed for. He's certainly not worth less than what uh, Josh Anderson has signed for. And if you start talking in that sort of six, seven, even million-dollar range for for this player, I don't know if the Canadians are going to be able to get there, if they have the desire to get there, uh, and if the player is interested knowing what the depth down the middle for the Canadians is right now. So, you know, if I'm the one looking at him, I don't let him go. If we have to get to Gallagher money to keep him, I would do that for sure. I think he's that good. He's a legitimate piece of that top line driving play. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if he winds up moving along as they, you know, commit money elsewhere. Yeah, see, Sean, that's what we were talking about just before uh, John and I were. And, and to me, you know, it's funny to see the reaction. A lot of fans, you know, everyone's happy that Gallagher's back. But it's a seven-year commitment now if you attach that six-year extension to the one year left. Uh, Josh Anderson signs an extension. Everybody thinks seven years is too long. I get it. Like, I understand that. But at a certain point... If you want to have, if you want to get these cap hits to be as reasonable as possible, you're going to have to give out term. But in this case, you're right with the Deno thing. Just because you know, you look a couple years down the line, and if everybody develops the way you hope they develop, and that's I.E. Suzuki and Kotkaniemi, then you know Phil Deno is going to have to take a reduced role. But right now, he's set to hit the market next summer, and. There's no doubt in my mind that he can fetch those numbers that you're talking about. Like I think he could be in the five, six, six and a half million dollar range, and I just I'd have a hard time letting a guy like that walk. Yeah, I completely agree, and it's always difficult. You know, like what are we hoping for with a guy like to know he's worth six and a half, seven million right now, mm-hmm. right in the middle of his prime, going to be a free agent. If I'm working for any of the other thirty teams or thirty-one teams, you know, by the time we get there. Uh, it's a player that I target, knowing that he's a first or second line center with proven results driving play, and I don't let him go. And you're hoping eventually that a Kakeniemi or a Suzuki they've flashed. Uh, yeah. You know, especially Kakeniemi really revitalized himself through the playoffs. You're hoping that one of them turns into a Deno type player, maybe Deno plus. But you've got him in hand, so you know the, the Canadians are in a situation where they only have a few hundred thousand left under the cap right now. So trying to do something with Deneau means somebody else is out the door, yeah. and I don't know what that looks like. But I agree with you. I, I just don't know how you get off a player like Deneau whose results are proven, who's right in the middle of his prime. It's the kind of guy that you're immediately trying to replace as soon as you let him go, and you're betting on you know a Kakaniemi who looked like maybe he wasn't coming back to the NHL last year. Or, or Suzuki, who looks great, but you need more than one guy down the middle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'm really, I'm hopeful that they figured it out with him. I think he's the right player for this team. I love watching that line play together, but I'm pretty skeptical that they get it done. Uh, all right, you you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to follow up on, uh, Sean. You said that Jake Allen, the numbers were better than Jordan Binnington's numbers in St. Louis last season. Can you take us into a, maybe give us like a bit of a, a deeper dive into what the numbers suggest uh, Allen's performance looked like? Sure. So 
one thing, a great way to go about this is uh, using data from moneypuck.com, a great place to, to go and get uh, sort of that shot data. And if we look at the shots that Jake Allen faced last year, uh, again, he was sort of splitting the time with Bennington here and there. He faced 53 expected goals. You add up all those shots. How many goals should he have given up? It was 53. And he only allowed 49. Um, that's, you know, it's a plus, And especially in a periodic role that he was playing, not regular playing time. He gave his uh, team a chance to win every time he went out there. And St. Louis was fairly uneven defensively last year, especially at the beginning of the season. They were giving up a lot of quality against. Bennington just broke even, so he gave up exactly the number of goals uh, that we would expect, just an average performance. And so, uh, you know, when you bring in a Jake Allen, who's been a starter in the league, has handled the sort of 65% of the starts kind of workload, he's only 30, uh, signed to a pretty reasonable uh, cap number as a backup, ultimately, uh, and he was above expectation last year. The thing that might be a bit of a killer with him, and it'll be something to watch, um, looking at his shots map where he allowed his goals, he had a penchant for giving up sort of long-distance wristers. And those are always, uh, they sort of suck the life out of your team when something weak from beyond the face-off dots goes in. And that's what sort of got him last year, where he's giving up wristers from the left point beyond the, the left circle. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, he still came out above expectation. So I think, again, another decent or sneaky good move for Bergevin to bring in somebody who can you know, spell price off. Uh, they're trying to extend the length of his career as he goes into his mid-30s. And Jake Allen's a guy who can, you know, go 50-50 with price through the year if they need to. So I think he helps. Um, he's not a world beater, but he's definitely at least average and probably above. Sean Tierney, Director of Analytics for the uh, Hamilton Bulldogs of the OHL and from ChartingHockey.ca, uh, joining us on Saturday Sports on TSN 690. All right, Sean, uh, get you out on this one. Uh, the Canadians drafted Yan Misak in the second round this year, and I know he spent some time in Hamilton. Uh, he picked up 25 points in 22 games, really adjusted well uh, to the OHL game. What can you tell us about this prospect? Yeah, I mean, I can only go into uh, you know so much uh, detail, but I can say it's yeah. uh, a great, great pick uh, for the team. Um, absolutely uh, big offensive potential and someone that Canadian fans are going to love to watch develop. He's a, a really great young player and loved having him uh, on our team, really filled a huge role. So someone for uh, Canadian fans to keep an eye on very excitedly, I would say. Sean, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for breaking down the numbers for us, and uh, hopefully we can do this again real soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's Sean Tierney. Uh, he's the director of analytics for the Hamilton Bulldogs, and he also has a great website, chartinghockey.ca. Uh, uh, he's one of those guys that just he, he breaks down the numbers for you on Twitter, and uh, he does it in a way that's very, very simple, and I'm a big fan of that. Uh, so it's been cool the last couple of weeks with uh, Jason Paul of uh, Wave Intel uh, joining us, and now Sean Tierney. We're just getting that uh, those analytics guys that can um, put a, a simple spin on the numbers, which is uh, fascinating to me. It's Saturday Sports on TSN 690. Joey Alfieri, John Still uh, with you till noon. The Impact's Assistant Sporting Director, Vasily Kremenzidis, uh, will join us just after 11 o'clock. Uh, we'll also be talking to uh, Aaron Rodgers' former teammate and a standout left tackle for the Montreal Alouettes, Josh Burke, just after 11.35. Uh, but I did want to talk a little baseball. And Will Smith did something incredible during the Dodgers-Braves game last night that we've never seen in postseason history. Will Smith was a hero. Will Smith blew it. What the heck am I even talking about? We'll break that down on Saturday Sports on TSN 690.
Welcome back to Saturday Sports on TSN 690. I'm Joey Alfieri with John Still. We're with you till 11 o'clock, uh, breaking down. Uh, I mean, we've talked. We talked. We talk a little NFL later on in the next hour. Uh, we're going to be. The whole second hour is all NFL. Well, we're, no, not the no, whole second hour. We're talking soccer as well with Vasily Krimanzidis of The Impact. Uh, we're going to talk to one of Aaron Rodgers' former teammates. We just talked hockey for the first 50 minutes uh, of the show. And I uh, caught a little bit of baseball last night. That's what I want to talk about. Yeah. A 3 2. Swing and a drive. Deep left field. That one on its way. God. Will Smith off Will Smith. And just like that, the Dodgers have taken the lead. Love that. Will Smith on Will Smith crime. Uh, it's the first time in postseason history <laughs> that two players with the same name have faced off against each other. And uh, maybe we could get a little uh, get jiggy with it here, uh, John, just uh, on the way out. There you go. It's like you, dude. We didn't even. Re- I didn't even ask you for that before this very moment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was, obviously that's the first thing everybody thought. And I saw Will Smith, uh, the Dodgers, Will Smith, who hit the home run. That was a big. They're down two. Was it two one at that point? That's right. In the sixth, and he hits a monster three run blast off Will Smith, the left handed reliever uh, from the Atlanta Braves. And uh, it it was I don't know I found that it was pretty funny but you know at the same time like you know it's not uh, Joey Alfieri or John Still like names that are a little bit more you know unique like Will Smith is yeah I get I it I mean it's it's but it's still pretty funny it's pretty funny to see you know that and but it's not just like a dribbler to first base and he's out it's a, mom, a mammoth home run uh, to put the Dodgers up and to keep the Dodgers alive in the NLCS. So Dodgers force a game six. Uh, they will look to force a game seven. I believe that gets going at is that four o'clock today or just I after four so. o'clock. Uh, and then on the other side, the Houston Astros they just won't go away. And this is the thing that's funny to me is the Astros should be so much more of a story and a positive story in 2020. They they finished the regular season 29 and 31, so they're under 500. They've got a new manager in Dusty Baker that has to come in and put out the fires from the first day of spring training. Guy who wasn't even here three years ago with the you know with the whole trash can tip pitching scandal. That's right. And so he's got to come in. They're twenty nine and thirty one, and they're down three nothing in the ALCS. And some of them I saw where some of the Astros were watching a documentary from two thousand four when the Red Sox came back from three nothing down. Oh, I didn't even to know beat that. the Yankees. Yeah, they did. Some of the Astros watched that, and this should be so much more of a story and a positive story that they've come back, they've tied the series, they forced the game seven tonight, and instead nobody feels good for the Astros outside of Astros fans just because of the cheating and everything that went down three years ago. And they've been so cocky about it and so annoying about it. You know, guys are are putting their hand to their ear after they hit big home runs. And it's like, but... And that, now the attitude is, you're, you're seeing where the Astros are like, see, see, we're good enough. We're good enough to get to force a game seven in the ALCS. Yeah, but you cheated. You didn't have to cheat, mm-hmm. but you did cheat. So this should be way more of a feel-good story. Uh, with um, with George Springer and Jose Altuve and all those guys, but it's just it's not because nobody likes them. Nobody likes the Astros. They're so unlikable. And I, you know what? I'll, listen, I know they finished twenty nine and thirty one. They're under five hundred. But I give Dusty Baker credit for keeping this thing on the rails. We had no choice. I mean, you'd rather not have to put yourself in that position. But 
you know, uh, uh, the first three games, you know, went their way big time, and the last three, you know, went ours. And uh, boy, uh, you know, game seven, I got a friend of mine that in New York, Steve Goodman, he was trying to come up with a game called Game Seven. And uh, you know, the Game Seven is, uh, you know, you know, winner take all. Uh, you know, they battled back. They didn't, they didn't quit at all. And um, and they're not gonna. So, uh, you know, we got to keep scoring. Uh, you know, I was hoping that those runs. With, with bases loaded in the in the eighth and nobody out, you know, didn't come back to haunt us. You know, if we could have added one there and another one, then we'd have went from seven to two to nine or ten to two. So, uh, you know, we certainly, uh, you know, got to get better, you know, taking up those, you know, those runs. So love October baseball. I know during the regular season I do follow, but not as closely. Like I'm not going to watch full games during the regular season, especially with no Montreal team. Shout out to John Still for wearing the Expos cap again today. You know it. Yeah. But I find baseball is one of those sports where if you don't have, you know, if you don't have a local team, it's tough to follow. So I'll hop around, you know, a random weeknight. I'll hop around and watch a couple innings of Dodger baseball at night and early. Like I'll, I'll follow the, you know, Dodgers, Yankees, Red Sox, and those guys. Uh, but I mean, you're locked in in the playoffs in October, and you just for moments like this, the Astros coming back from three nothing down against Tampa to force a game seven. Will Smith hits a home run off Will Smith. Just October baseball, and we're probably going to get to November baseball. But October baseball is always fantastic. So we've got a Game 6 in the NLCS tonight. We've got a Game 7 in the ALCS tonight. Spots in the World Series up for grabs. I think it's so impressive what Houston have done without Garrett Cole. Yeah. Like to lose Garrett Cole and then to be back here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really impressive to be pitching like that in the offseason. I mean, in the playoffs, sorry. But uh, I'm with you in the same way that... I mean, everyone hates the Astros. I mean, there's very few. There's the trolls who yeah. love the Astros because everyone hates them, and I get that. But um, I'm only on the Rays bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, I knew we were going here. Because uh-huh. I want them to win the World Series. Yeah. No one in Tampa care. And then forcing Rob Manfred's hand to finally... Yeah. Bring the Tampa Bay Rays See? to Montreal. No. See, I this think this is exactly I think what of it this, Yeah, but I think of it this way. All right. I'm rooting for the Astros to make it to the World Series and lose because that just puts them at the forefront again. And you can hear them, you know, say all the dumb things or do all the dumb things that they've done throughout this season, even though their batting averages have all come down significantly for the most part. Yep. But I want the Astros through because that, I mean, Listen, I don't root. I don't want to root for teams to fail, but sometimes you have to think of yourself, and it's me first. Can you imagine the gut punch in Tampa Bay if you have a three nothing lead in the yeah, ALCS? You're not wrong, and you blow it, and you, and you get eliminated in Game Seven. I'm just, I'm just so convinced. That's a gut punch. For I'm a fan so base, convinced man. as to their apathy already with the Rays that I have no doubt that no one will care. All right, I'm still rooting for the Astros. I just, I, I think it's a great story if they make it to the World Series. And I'm going to root for the Dodgers just because I can't root for the Can Braves. you imagine here in Montreal, you have to root for one of the Astros or the Braves? Good luck. I think It's going to be the most hated World Series in the history of mankind. Yeah. I, in Montreal anyway, I guess. But yeah, we'll see what how that all shakes out. World Series, a spot in the World Series up for grabs tonight, possibly. Uh, maybe the Dodgers can force a Game 7. Uh, but fascinating to see uh, how the world of baseball is shaking out. Uh, the Montreal Impact ship midfielder Safir Tider to the Saudi League this week. It doesn't look like they're going to replace him for the playoff push this year. So why make the move now? 
The Impact's Assistant Sporting Director, Vasily Kremenzidis, will tell us. I'm Joey Alfieri. This is Saturday Sports on TSN 690.